Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor this Jim Cuban. a series of standalone teachings just to declare the individual things that the other, the other church, the early church was that we should be. I often sit back and I, I look and I read the stories and I, I read a lot of church history and I think, how did a person stand to do that? Because they had unwavering hope is how they could stand to do what they did, to accomplish what they accomplished. Because they took the message that we talked about last week, Christ and Him crucified, and embedded it into their spirit. That Jesus Christ died for their sins not only died for their sins, but short of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, we would spend eternity separated from Him and in hell. Damn there because of our sin. That's the truth of the gospel message. That we are all sinners, all fallen short. None of us are righteous. We could go on and on. If you're ever interested to know who you were before Jesus, as it's seen from the perspective of God, read Romans chapter 3. And then read it again and then read it again until it gets you so convicted that you fall on your face before the Lord and repent. You're all, but I'm already saved. Read chapter 3 and then read it again and then read it again because there's still something that we can all repent for. There's still some imperfection in us that God's trying to work out through, through His Son Jesus in us. So the question remains, why was it so powerful? Is the early church so powerful? Because, or at least the part that we're going to talk about today, is because they had an unwavering hope. They had a hope, which is the resurrection. Just so you guys know, the resurrection is the hope that we have. That our life does not end when we die. Our life is eternal through Christ Jesus. This is the consequence, or one of the consequences, of us surrendering ourselves to the message that is Christ and Him crucified. We should take that hope, that resurrection hope that we have, and be unwavering in it as the early church was unwavering in it. So much compromise has happened in society and the world today because the church has, determ has determined to waver instead of being unwavering. We've decided to abdicate our responsibility on the city square. We've decided that we're going to step out of the light and into the shadow. Let me tell you, the only thing that's going to do is create more shadow. God didn't call for you to hide anywhere, but to be a light and salt in a world so that decay might stop so that Jesus might be seen. That's what that means. But we've been unwilling to do that. We have wavered in our responsibility to be what God's called us to be. But it's not always been this way. It shouldn't be this way. People that say, well, this is just how we've always done it. They're going to find that that's an unacceptable excuse in the eyes of God. The church has been called to bigger and better things. To be unwavering. Like Christ was unwavering. Christ could have given up on us, but he didn't. Christ could have killed us and made a new us. Never having gone to the throne, never having had to go to the cross, but he didn't. 
He was unwavering in the plan that God had. We should be so unwavering. In the early church, this was not uncommon. There's a guy that, that's written in the early history books of the church named Polycarp. If you're not familiar with Polycarp, Polycarp was the direct disciple of John the Apostle. And so he was the guy that learned from John the Apostle, who happened to be the only one that was never martyred, or that wasn't martyred that we know of. Polycarp, however, was told, captured and told to deny Jesus. And he refused. And they killed him for it. This was his dying declaration. Just so you know, he died while being burned at the stake. But according to the annals of history, the flames didn't lick at him. So they ended up having to stab him to death. Because when told to deny Christ, this is what he said, for 86 years, he has not betrayed me. And I find no reason now to blaspheme my King and my Savior. Man, this is, the, this is the condition of our heart or what it should be. This is the unwavering attitude that we should take towards what we've been given, the hope of our eternity. St. Bartholomew, or, or the Apostle Bartholomew as it was, as it were, was also martyred. Okay, let me tell you. So they burned Christians at the stake. This is important. When I was in Israel... I had one of the probably top five sobering moments of my life. And there's been a couple times I thought I'd die, so that's pretty significant. <laughs> I was traveling around Israel, and they brought us to an arena. And the arena was about the size of a football field, maybe three-quarters the size of a football field, but it was, it was essentially ruined. The wall, which had been at some point very high, was only about this tall. And about every six to eight feet, you could see black marks on the wall all the way around this facility. Now imagine in its glory days when it rose real high and all that. And I asked the tour guide, I said, can you tell me why? What's, what's, why is it these spots black? He said, this is where they would burn the Christians. This was the arena where they would burn the Christians to light their game. We were light fixtures because we refused to deny Jesus. And the evidence of that persecution still exists is soot on the walls of that arena. That was the unwavering attitude that the early church had. Bartholomew believed in the simple gospel message, as we all should. He believed that, as we all should, that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation for those who believed, first to the Jew and then the Greek, as we all should. And he traveled all over the place as an evangelist declaring that gospel after Jesus died until he got to Armenia. In Armenia, he spoke the gospel and the king of Armenia got saved. The brother didn't like that. The king's brother didn't like that. So they took Bartholomew after telling him to deny Christ and he refused 
They tied him up. And I don't mean to be grotesque. I want you to know the conviction that the early church stood in. They tied him up and stripped his flesh off of his body. And I don't mean just peeled it off of his body. I mean literally by strips. Cut deep enough to remove the skin, but not deep enough to kill him. Until he got down to his waistline and let that skin lay over his belt. And they would do another piece and lay it over his belt and another piece and lay it over his belt. Until he had finally bled so much and suffered to the extent that he wasn't going to live anymore and then they cut his head off. The only thing Bartholomew would have had to have done was say, I rescind the gospel message. I don't believe that that's true. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, starting with Stephen, we see the persecution of the church. We see the martyrdom of the church. Stephen, stoned to death, refused to renounce the Savior that he had. We see it over, I'm not trying to be melodramatic or overly dramatic. I'm trying to tell you that this is the, this is the truth, the unwavering attitude that they had concerning the truth. We see it in Stephen. We see it all throughout church history. We see it today in the Middle East as Christians, even still today because of their refusal to deny Christ, having their heads cut off and set on fire because they won't deny Jesus. And you're like, yeah, but that's, that's way over there and it doesn't happen very often. Let me tell you, there are more Christians right now being martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ than there has been in any other time in world history. We got to start paying attention. We have to get to a place that they were in. Because anything that starts somewhere makes its way to somewhere else. And I think it's a matter of time before we have to have that kind of unwavering conviction. That we have to be willing to lay down our life because Christ laid his life down for us. That unwavering conviction brings courage. That unwavering hope of the resurrection brings us courage to say, though my life be but a vapor, I will not denounce him. I will not say that he isn't true. I will not deny the gospel. Guys, this is, this is courageous stuff. I want to build in you an understanding that the early church was powerful because they stood on a powerful truth. That Christ was crucified and that they had a hope of eternity. And that's the kind of unwavering hope we have to have too. It's a matter of time. And I'm not a doom and gloom guy. But the Bible declares it. The end time's coming. My grandmother used to say it all the time. Jesus is coming back any day. She's still saying it. Jesus is coming back any day. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know he's closer to coming back than he was the first time I heard her say it. And I want to be ready for it. Don't you? And we can be if we're unwavering in our hope the way that the early church was. And so I want to talk to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first three verses essentially tell, say what I told you last week. That there is a gospel by which we're saved. And if we hold fast to that word, we will be saved. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. 
And where I hope to pick up today is that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. There's three points I want to make out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm not going to go verse by verse like I do a lot of times because there's too much material. The first point I want to make is that the vintage church was effective and powerful because they knew their unwavering hope comes from fact. Their unwavering hope was based in fact. Let me read this to you. In verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas. This is after he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul says, I, I was born an apostle differently than they were born. I had a Christophany. Christ appeared to him, as you know from the book of Acts. Their, their wavering, unwavering hope was based in fact. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They had a conversations with Jesus after Jesus was raised from the dead. They understood that Jesus was the manifest truth of the Old Testament truths. That everything that Jesus told them about Himself had come to fruition. This is what Jesus said about Himself. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus said this and in three days He was raised up. Jesus said, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and, be, and by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after that, three days, rise again. And then they saw it happen. Jesus said that he would die, that he would be raised again. And based in fact, by personal eyewitness testimony, by conversations, by showing himself to over 500 people, their unwavering hope was founded in fact. Guys, that's good. But do you know something else? Our unwavering hope is found in fact too. I haven't touched Jesus. I've been touched by Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. I've never had a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation like I would with you guys, I've never heard the audible voice of God. So how can I say that my unwavering hope is based in fact? Because of this. Psalms 16, 9 through 10. The Old Testament prophets spoke that Jesus would exist and what He would do. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's David. A lot of people ask, did David know he was talking about Jesus? I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't, I don't know that it matters. But what I do know is that Peter declares by quoting this verse in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost that this spoke of Jesus. And if it's in this Bible, it's true. And so I do have faith based in fact. The fact that this Bible is true. 
I need you to stand on the Word of God as fact. This is fact. Now, I can't just say the Bible is true because the Bible is true. That's circular reasoning. That doesn't make any sense. That's like me saying, I'm good looking because I'm good looking. Well, I can't use the fact that I'm good looking to argue the fact that I'm good looking. If you look around, you'll see I'm probably less than average good looking, but I'm, I, I ain't scaring kids. Well, I scare some kids. But my point is, the Bible isn't circular in its reasoning. I don't tell you trust in the Bible because the Bible can be trusted, even though the Bible says it can be trusted. The Bible says that it's breathed by God, inspired by God, useful for every purpose. But you know there's fact in this book that can be proven? Did you know there's archaeological, geographical, geological, medical proofs that the scripture is real did you know in the book of Job written centuries ago centuries before we knew in science that the earth was blue and suspended in space by nothing we didn't know the earth was blue and round and suspended by nothing didn't truly know that until we sent our first satellite into space we had a pretty good idea but we didn't know that. Certainly they didn't know it then. But the Bible says it. And so that proves that the Bible is true. It talks about the, the water cycle and how water rises and falls and comes back to itself and then rises again. Science didn't know that. The Bible, the law, talks about uh, quarantine and how to quarantine disease long before quarantine was even known or necessary or understood. Because God knows that germs existed and that germs could be passed from one person to another long before we understood it. So we stand on fact too. Have unwavering hope that what the Bible tells you is true. If you ever want to have, I, I did a whole sermon on how I can know the Bible is true. And I, I, I laid out all these geographical proofs, all these astrological proofs in the scripture. If you ever want a copy of that, hit me up, I'll email it to you. But it's, it's amazing what the Bible tells us was true before we knew it was true. But if the, the thing that I like the most, the thing that builds the most confidence in the fact that the Bible is true for me, besides the fact that the Holy Spirit, by whom I'm sealed, bears witness to my spirit that it's real, is this fact. Is that this book consists of 66 individual books written by over 40 authors over a time frame of 1,500 years. Before telephone, before email, before any of that, 66 books were written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years with the same message. There ain't enough monkeys on enough typewriters, if you guys are familiar with the analogy to prove that false, to prove that anything but true, that the Bible is the true Word of God. Amen? I want you to have unwavering hope because God declared you can have unwavering hope because Christ is crucified, because according to that same Word, 
he stay or he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you because he was raised on the third day because he showed himself to over 500 people because he proves himself to you whether you see it or not over and over and over in your personal life the fact that we have breath in our lungs the amazing grace that we have is a proof of why we should have unwavering hope amen not only did they know this, not only did they have this unwavering hope based on fact, they, had, they knew that unwavering hope, which is the resurrection, makes and keeps promises to us. Remember I told you that Jesus said, tear this down and in three days I'll, I'll build it back and then in three days I'll be raised again? Let me give you a simple truth. You can write this down if you want to. If a guy says, I'm going to die, and this is exactly how I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day, and does it? Listen to that dude. Because he'll be the only one in history to have done it. And Jesus is the only one in history that has ever done it. Muhammad, still in the grave. Buddha, still in the grave. The writer of the Book of Mormon, still in the grave. There's only one place to hang your unwavering hope, and that's on the gospel and the hope that it brings to us for eternity. But it makes and keeps promises to us. His resurrection proves promises to us. In verse 12, it starts like this. He says, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. He's saying, listen, I preached to you, you believed it. So now how is it that some of you are going to deny the resurrection? It doesn't stand to reason. And then he starts asking a bunch of negative questions or makes a bunch of negative statements. He said, but if there is no resurrection, now let me tell you, there is a resurrection, which is the point that he's making, which means none of these are true. But the exact opposite of them are true and they're relayed to us as promises. If Christ is preached that he has been raised, or I'm sorry, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been dead, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are all men, most to be pitied. But, everybody say but. And that's so good. But now Christ has been raised. So he's saying, listen, as long as we're reasoning, let me give you the truth. The truth is that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So he's declaring to us in negative fashion promises. He's showing us the opposite of the truth so that we can understand the truth. He's trying to show us that the resurrection made promises to us. And you know what those promises are? That we're not false witnesses. That the gospel is true. That you can be saved. 
by declaring Jesus Christ as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Why? Because Christ has been raised. Your faith is profitable, which means you will inherit something incredible, and that is eternal life. Why? Because Christ has been raised. These are the promises that you've been given. Your faith is true. You're not a false witness. Your faith is profitable. I love this. You are no longer in your sins. Because Christ has been raised, you're no longer in your sin. I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to talk to you for a minute. You're no longer in your sin. You're no longer in your sin. Why do I say it a couple times? Because we don't understand it. We don't get it. And we mope around like we're still in our sin. Or we act like we're not still in our sin. Let me tell you, there's two problems. One, we haven't recognized that Jesus Christ died to give us new life, to change our nature, to give us a divine nature, to give us His nature, so that we might walk in holiness, so that we might be sanctified. He redeemed us so we can be set aside to Him. This is the truth of the Word of God. And yet so many of us determined to live in the mess that we lived in prior to Jesus Christ giving His life for us and making a, us making a declaration of it. We come to the altar and we say, God, forgive me, and I punch my ticket and I put the card in my pocket and I go sit down. And now I tell everybody for the rest of my life, yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus. When you're going to hell, just the same as before you walked up here because you didn't allow the Holy Spirit to do any work in you at all. You just made a public profession of faith. But for those who have grabbed a hold of and believed the gospel, you are no longer in your sin. Start living like you're no longer in your sin. And not saying you're not going to fail. You're not going to mess something up from time to time. Know that God's grace is amazing and that when repenting, He will forgive us. But walk out of that sin. God gave you self-control as a fruit of the Spirit so that you can walk in that holiness that He gave you. Everybody okay? Did I talk too fast? Some of y'all sitting back in your chair right now. But I got something else to tell you too. You're not in your sin. Stop letting people tell you you're still in your sin. So many people are all so willing to tell other people how horrible they are. Well, old Jim Kubik, he's never going to be anything other than what he's always been. You know what I do? The blood of Jesus Christ has covered the sins that I committed then. Not covered them. Let me make a correction. He's washed them clean. He's removed them from me, just as He's removed them from you. The promise of the resurrection that gives us an unwavering hope is that I'm not who I used to be. And the opinion of others besides Christ doesn't matter about what I used to be. Walk in the wholeness Christ gave you. Stand in the unwavering hope that is the resurrection. I'm not good enough. You are good enough. You weren't good enough. But Jesus Christ died so that you could be. So we've been given these promises. And for all of those reasons, we're not to be pitied. We're to be comforted and confident. 
Y'all see how this has nothing to do with us? But because Jesus did, and then he gave us, and then he proved it by being in heaven with the Father even now, we know that we can count on the same thing. This is what caused the early church to be so powerful. What caused the early church to be so strong? Because they thought, even if I lay my life down, it's not going to matter. Even if I'm stripped clean of my flesh, it's not going to matter. Because the second that I'm dead, I'm in the presence of the Almighty King. God, that's so good. The church needs to get back to that place. Let the circumstance of our life go and recognize that God's bigger than the circumstance of our life. This is what the early church knew. Finally, and I'm going to end here. They knew, the early church knew, the vintage church knew that, of, that unwavering hope comes with its own then. T-H-E-N. I told you guys, I tell you guys all the time because it's so necessary. We serve an if-then God. If you do this, then I will do this. There's a blessing and a curse for doing or not doing everything God tells us to do. We serve an if-then God. But the hope of the resurrection comes with its own then. If we are raised from the dead, therefore, brethren, this is what he's saying, then, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I'm not going to overemphasize this point. I'm just going to tell you, listen, if this is the resurrection that you, power that you live in, if this is the unwavering hope that you have, you have a responsibility to it. God didn't save you to have you sit in here and stare at me every Sunday. There's other people you could be staring at. Yes, I'll be all a little, a little too ready to say that's right, but all right. <laughs> but be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't let people convince you what you know isn't true. Always abounding in the works of the Lord. Always abounding in the works of the Lord. You know what that means? Act like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Walk like Jesus. Talk like Jesus. Pray like Jesus. Reach out to others like Jesus. When was the last time you thought, man, you know what, I got an extra hour on my hands. I think I'm going to go to the square and whittle. And just pray before I leave, or maybe on the way there, that the Holy Spirit create an opportunity for someone to, for me to pray with or tell the gospel to. This is the work of the Lord. It sounds silly, man. It sounds so silly. Until you're the one that stumbles upon a guy on a bench whittling a stick and here's a message that changes your whole life and your whole eternity I came to the Lord because someone was willing to do the work of the Lord the guy's name was Philip Michael Philip Michael was an instructor at the police academy when I was there he called me into his office I was living crazy man I was partying chasing women around drinking doing all the stuff that you do when you're young and single younger and single 
and he sat me down to his chair. I remember it was kind of a high back chair. He had a carpet in his office, like a area rug. I thought that was weird. Because the rest of us had linoleum. It's, it's not important. Anyway, I'm sitting there. And he says, listen to me. If you keep living like you're living, you're going to end up in hell. Told it to me just like that. And I told him, I said, you mind your own business. I didn't ask you for your opinion. And I don't appreciate it or want it. Something along those lines. And I get up to walk out of his office. He was 50-something years old, big kind of a grr kind of guy anyway. He said, sit down. I'm not done. I was raised by a grandfather. I was like, all right. <laughs> and so I sat down. He told me at some point you're going to come to the end of yourself or you're going to need to do it. But when you do, I want you to come with me to church. A year later, I met my wife. We dated. While we were dating, as we started to date, she looked at me and she said, I can't date you if you won't go to church with me. Guess what I did? I went to church because it seemed like a fair trade. I went to the only church that I'd been asked to, and that was Cornerstone Church by Philip Michael a year later. Never think, man, I asked them to come to church and they wouldn't come. There may be a day when they need you to have asked them a year ago. I say all that to say because that's just one work. But it's a work that played, that paid eternal dividends for me and for my family. That's the reason I stand here now, because of the work that God did while I was in that church. That I stand right here now telling you that I have an unwavering hope. That I will not be moved. And pray that you won't be either. Amen.